0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: We hope you enjoyed part one of Herman Hauser's Invested Investor podcast. In part two, we're going to hear some hot tips to entrepreneurs, as well as Herman speaking about some of the failures he's encountered and how we can learn from them. Enjoy. So how involved were you in ARM? Because obviously it was a spin out of ACORN, wasn't it? What yes, was it?
0: it was the 12 people that uh, was the team that I originally put together for the ARM, which was a, a crazy decision in itself that, uh, you know, we did a microprocessor in a little Cambridge uh, startup, but uh, we felt that we needed a new processor, the 6502, which was the microprocessor in the, in the BBC Micro. It was an 8-bit processor and there wasn't just There was just not enough performance. So we needed either a 16- or a 32-bit processor. We looked at every single 32-bit microprocessor in the world, including the 8286. And we went to Intel and said, look, it's not a bad processor, but you screwed up the pinout. You have put both the address bus and the data bus on the same pins. Nobody can make a sensible computer out of that. But if you sell us the die, we'll do our own pinout. So maybe we can make something of your chip. And they said, get lost. So we said, well, you get lost, we'll do our own. (laughs) You know, at the time we were arrogant and. (laughs) Yeah. The
1: rest is history, isn't it? So, yeah. Just a quick question Do you have all your old products, such as the Acorns and um, the Active Book Company, do you have those at home still? Uh, Yes, I do. Okay, brilliant. Before we move on to your invest in life, can you just tell us a story of E Trade?
0: Oh, yes. Uh, That was one of the. Real fun stories in my life. It all started with ESI, called Electronic Share Interchange, I think it was called, that I did with Jack Lang in Cambridge. And the idea was to have a Cambridge Stock Exchange. Uh, so we went to the London lawyer, Slaughter and May, who wrote the rule book in the 18 somethings for the London Stock Exchange. It was a 40 page rule book and said, Could we start another stock exchange in the UK? And they said, absolutely no problem. We've done one here before. Here is the rule book. <laughs> you know, the present rule book of the London Stock Exchange is 400 pages, but you don't need that. But you know, if, as a startup, we can make it very simple for you again. But then the internet uh, made it possible to do share trading over the internet. And uh, so we did that first with a view of then going and producing a stock exchange. So we were the first company to allow people to trade uh, shares over the Internet. It was a bit primitive, really, because it, <laughs> we would receive the order over the Internet at our premises in Cambridge, and then send the fax to ShareLink, which was the telephone trading uh, company in Birmingham that had, had a you know an interface that could do it, and they did it for us and then we. They faxed it back and put it back into... Uploaded online. <laughs> uploaded it online, so that's how we, we started. But <laughs> it caused quite a splash at the time because we had a price feed from the stock exchange that allowed people to look at the price and then decide whether they want to buy the share or not. And it was a 15-minute delay so that it's not real time, but that was all right. It was the only launch of a company, together with the, the ShareLink founder, in... The pump room of of Tower Bridge. There's there's a nice room up there, and we had fifty hard-nosed uh, financial journalists in there, and we told them what we're doing, and we're selling shares of the internet, and they got up and clapped. <laughs> journalists never clap, especially <laughs> these uh, you know these financials. So so they thought we were just the bees knees, and this was the greatest thing since sliced bread, because it would revolutionise uh, uh, you know share industry, etc. Which it did. And we said, no, hang on, hang on, we've got a, one more announcement to make. The stock exchange just told us that they're going to break the deal that we had with them uh, because they want to do it themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we had a deal with them and we're very sorry, but in a month's time, we might have to close down operation. You should have seen the headlines in the next day. London Stock Exchange tries to squash little Cambridge startup. <laughs> this is, so we were absolute headline, front page of the Financial Times. So the government got involved and there was the Office of Fair Trading, I think it might have been, or some government office that the London Stock Exchange reported to. And we went to see them. And we realized that... Uh, the government can be your friend. Yeah. So they, they said, no, no, we want to have competition in this country. We will tell the London Stock Exchange that this is not on to give you a better deal. I said, well, how, how can you, you know, the London Stock Exchange is this 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 fantastic, important organization. How can you? No, oh, no, 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 no. He said, we will tell them that you, they'll, they'll give you a deal. And then I had the most extraordinary meeting of my life with the head of the London Stock Exchange. Absolutely hated to have to meet with me, this (laughs) startup in Cambridge. You know, he just loathed it. And then he did something which showed me he was out of his tree. He greeted me with the words, My word is my bond, in front of the, the main stock exchange conference room. This is the motto of the London Stock Exchange, The word is my bond, when he'd just broken a contract with me. So I thought, the, the guy is an idiot. Uh, I mean, I, I lost all respect for big institutions or people who hate them and realized that they, uh, you know, they're people like anybody else. And sometimes people in high positions are just stupid. The guy was just stupid. So he then started the negotiating with me. And then There was he and his lawyers on one side of the table and me and my lawyers. And he'd started laying into me how, you know, I can't behave like this. And uh, you know who, who, who do I think I am? And they're not going to do that. And his own lawyer said, you can't say this. You've just broken the (laughs) thing. You've got to give them. Anyway, they gave us everything that we wanted, cheaper for longer. (laughs) So we were riding high, and we we then became E-Trade. And then there's the next peculiar story that I went to the U.S. and said to Christos Kotsakis, who ran E-Trade U.S., which was the darling of the American financial industry at the time, that I'm going to build up E-Trade UK for him. And I was going to sell it to him then for four or five times revenue. And he exploded and said, absolutely not. I'm not going to give you a guaranteed exit. Let the market decide. I said, okay, Christus, that's fair enough. Let the market decide. But if you are my only customer... You know, I don't have a market, so you've got to allow me to sell to anybody else. They say, yeah, fair enough, but I'll give you a list of 10 people that you can't sell to, like Charles Schwab and JP Morgan and all these guys. So you give me the list, I signed the deal. Comes the year 2000. Goldman Sachs advises E-Trade US on their international strategy. And the first thing they said is, the next most important market is the UK. What are you doing in the UK? Well, I have this joint venture with this guy called Hauser. Uh, they say, okay, who owns the trademark? Well, well, the company. So, so uh, how much of the company do you own? Uh, 40% or something. <laughs> You've got to buy that company. <laughs> so we had revenues of $1 million at the time. So he could have had the company for $5 million. Yeah. His first offer was $80 million. And I then went to see how these companies are actually valued. And it was this crazy internet time. And I thought it was eyeballs because we had lots of eyeballs. No, no, not so. It was number of accounts. So there was a German company called Consort that had a valuation of 500 million or so because it had that many accounts. And these accounts that typically had 100 or 200 pounds in it because people wanted to learn how to trade on the internet, they were worth 30,000 pounds. So, on that metric, we were worth £450 million. Pounds. So, I went back and said, No, 80000000 million isn't enough. How about £450 million? Ah! So we settled for 280
1: 280 <laughs> up from the four or five million that you could have taken.
0: Uh, that you could have That's one, one of my better deals.
1: <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant. All right, well, on that, on one of your better deals, obviously, as a startup, let's move on to your angel investing. Yes. When was your first angel investment? But also, what attracted you to angel investing?
0: Well, like uh, all other business angels, I think when you've uh, built a, a company yourself and you've made a little bit of money, you sort of feel that you want to help other people to do the same. And our first investment really was like with Chris when we felt, um, you know, we could help. It was Chris Keatley, actually, who, who was interested in using this um, pat test, um, which became a successful test.
1: Okay. So, obviously, you wanted to help startups. In what way was this? So, you're still running your own company at this time, aren't you? You're yeah, we were Acre.
0: both running Acorn Computers. So, of course, we, we gave them some money. I think it was only a few hundred thousand pounds. We then met to define the product, to understand the technology. So, this was an early exposure to life sciences, which was fascinating. You know, I realized that these, uh, these PCRs, and I learned about PCR. At that time, because it was actually a PCR test, a uh, polymerase uh, chain reaction that creates these incredibly sensitive uh, diagnostic tests. So that was a great revelation to us that you can have these life science mechanisms that can be very, very sensitive and very you know, unexpectedly accurate.
1: It sounds like you've got your own business and you're still interested in other industries. So is that why you're kind of Yes, and,
0: and other entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, Chris Keatley was was a very energetic uh, young expert in that field. Uh, he wanted to start a company. He was quite friendly with Chris and uh, uh, we decided to help him. Okay.
1: So that was your early angel investing, that's back in the 80s. What year did you set up Amadeus?
0: Uh, 1997.
1: 1997. And did you set that up alone or did you co-found it? No, with
0: uh, Ann Glover. Ann Glover. So it's always been... uh, I've had two very successful business partnerships in my life, one with Chris Carayake on computers and now Amadeus.
1: So why did you decide to set up a
0: fund then? Well, because I had such... uh, I think at that time I must have been something like 50% of the business angel money in Cambridge. So I had such a deal flow because they knew I was a sucker for technologies if they came with a you know, a really exciting deal to me, I'll I'll fund them. Uh, So I did. But, you know, I already had, I don't know, 20 or 30 companies at that time. And I realized I need to do this more professionally. And I needed to, uh, you know, have a a process, a due diligence process. And after making the investments, I must have been more than 30. Because when the people did due diligence on Amadeus, I think I was on 50 boards. (laughs) 50 uh, boards? uh, uh, Yes, you know. uh, they said this is a little bit too much, you've got to resign from many of them. And this I mean the reason why I went on the board is because people wanted me on the board. And you know, clearly I couldn't uh, turn up to every board meeting in every company. I I would have spent all my life in board meetings. But you know, I always prided myself of being interruptible. So if any of the 50 companies wanted anything from me, they had my mobile phone number, they they phoned me, and I I I tried to help the best I can. But then I, you know. This was a very good excuse to come off most of the boards, so, uh, so I did.
1: How many boards are you on nowadays?
0: We have a maximum of uh, six at That We feel six is the maximum that a partner can handle.
1: Okay, so how many investments do you think you've made? If you include those 50 and I guess... Well,
0: well over 100. I hadn't counted, but it must have been well over 100, yeah. Wow.
1: So do you have a criteria at the moment?
0: Well, there uh, are three criteria in order of importance in my mind. The first one is the size and growth rate of the market, because unless it's a big market or will be a big market, why bother? Yeah. Two is the quality of the team, and I'm always looking for a star in the team, so because if you have an outstanding person, you can normally gather a, an outstanding team around him or her. And the third, sadly for a propeller head like me, is the defensible technology. And the reason why it's in that order is that I've seen so many examples of where an A team with C technology would beat the C team with A technology. Yeah. Okay.
1: What does your ideal entrepreneur
0: or entrepreneurs look like? What sort of characteristics do they have? Well, they have to have passion. And that's probably, you know, goes without saying it. Every venture capitalist will tell you that, that people really have to be passionate about the project that they're engaged in because that will give them the energy to punch through the difficult uh, periods that uh, invariably they will encounter in a startup.
1: How do you gauge that, though? You you meet them for the first time, and or do you have to...?
0: Uh, yeah, I, I think the two things that I suppose comes with uh, having a bit of experience in this field is, one, you realise whether they're just... Uh, uh, you know have a sort of superficial excitement about the project or whether they really are engaged and it really has become part of their lives and the other is uh, you know assessing whether if they're a five-star wizard because if they tell you that they're a five-star wizard they uh, normally aren't that also takes a little bit of uh, experience
1: what's the most exciting investment you've got at the moment
0: Well, there are four technologies that I think, you know, are really uh, going to change our lives in the next five to 10 years. Uh, One is AI and machine learning. Two is uh, blockchain and smart contracts. Three is synthetic uh, biology. And the fourth is quantum computing. And I've got sort of favorite companies uh, in each of them. But long term, if you're thinking just of a single one in terms of the sheer excitement about the long term consequences it's potentially one in quantum computing it's a new quantum computing architecture and that could be the sort of the arm of quantum computing but you know if you don't want to go completely blue sky i suppose it's graphcore the chip that has a chance of becoming the microprocessor of choice for uh, machine learning and ai okay that's it's brilliant. the first uh, unicorn in bristol you know, we just managed to raise $200 million for that company at a $1.7 billion post. So it's a very unusual situation that you can do that in Britain. Normally, you can only do that in Silicon Valley or in, uh, in China.
1: Is that one that you're sat on the board
0: with? Yeah. Yeah, really yes. interesting. Yeah, we've just had a board meeting yesterday. It's a, it's a very exciting company.
1: Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of success. Can we talk about some failures?
0: Well, you know, there have been lots of failures Many of these companies failed in lots of uh, different ways. The one remarkable thing to report is that I only have one single example where the technology failed completely. I mean, technology often doesn't work quite as well as people think it will or, you know, not on time. But that a technology doesn't work at all is actually very rare. In ICT, in mean, life sciences is a different story. In ICT, and that was a company called Polite, and I will never forget that because we were very excited about that company. It was called Polite for polarized light, and it was based on chalcogenides. And chalcogenides are materials where one wavelength of light can change the refractive index of the chalcogenides for another wavelength of light. And therefore, we thought we could produce worm disks. These are right-once-only disks with a higher density than anybody else in the world. So we, we thought we might be able to revolutionize these laser disks for data storage. And the back-of-the-envelope calculations really looked very good, that we could be much better than any storage medium ever devised before. So we started this company. as very exciting uh, for... For some reason, the Czechs are world experts on chalcogenides. So we had a Czech PhD student who was a PhD student at Cambridge. This was a spin-out from the chemistry lab. And one day he comes into the board meeting and says, uh, I'd like to prove to you now on the whiteboard that what we're trying to do can't be done. <laughs> so he wrote up the formulae to prove to us this isn't possible, and had a great smile on his face because it was quite a, a difficult argument that he won. We all accepted it. And then we knew we were going to shut down the company. So uh, it was you know, both a great technical achievement to understand that this can't be done and a disaster for the company because we knew we didn't have a company so we had to close it down. <laughs> and he didn't have a job. So... Uh, but he was, you know, completely intellectually honest and, and he knew what he was doing and he knew that this meant that we had to close the company down. So it was was quite sad. But
1: Have you heard from him since? Has he set up another company in a different...
0: I, I don't know. No, I have not uh, kept in touch with him. Okay. But I'm sure he's a great researcher. He probably stayed at the university, but I have lost contact with him.
1: Before we kind of close up, Let's just have a quick chat about the European Research Council
0: because you work very closely with that. What does the ERC do? The EIC, the European Innovation Council, which I chair. The ERC is probably one of the greatest success stories of Europe. The European Research Council is about, I think, 20% of Horizon 2020, so it's probably... um, 12 or 14 billion euros over a seven-year period. And the reason why it is so successful is that it's a grant-giving body for universities that only has one criterion, which is excellence. And Cambridge, of course, does extremely well. In fact, the UK does extremely well on the ERC. It's one of the sad things that's going to go away with Brexit. And the reason why it's such a success is because it's become a European-wide yardstick for excellence. So even humble universities like Cambridge will quote the number of ERC grants that they have as a proof of how good the university is. And this is quite a contrast to the way the grants were given by Horizon 2020 before, where you had to have you know, people from Greece and Portugal because you had to have two or three countries involved. And you normally had to have a country from the south and one of the smaller countries. And although it was incredibly beneficial to Build up a community of European researchers, so it, it was certainly worthwhile doing. Not all the projects have been successful, whereas the ERC projects are really spectacularly successful. And because the ERC has worked so well, the Commission then decided to set up the EIC, the European Innovation Council, which takes these ideas, these successful ideas from the ERC and elsewhere and makes companies out of this. So this is the next stage after the research, which is of course of commercialization stage. And there we will have what we call blended finance. We have a combination of grants, loan guarantees, and equity for the first time. This will probably be around 12 billion euros over a seven year period. So it will be a couple of billion a year or thereabouts. So it will be a substantial initiative. And it will use the equity money to crowd in market money, so it will never go alone. It will always let the uh, the market do the due diligence, but it will help, uh, you know, create a better equity base, a better venture environment in Europe, because uh, Europe is still only one fifth of the venture capital compared with the US. So we, we're way behind, and we need, uh, you know, we need to grow our ecosystem, which is actually growing very well, uh, European venture capital. uh, US venture capital didn't do particularly well during the first 20 years, and people often forget that. European venture capital has just had the 20 years, and if you now look at the returns between the US and Europe, there isn't any difference anymore. In fact, European venture capital gave slightly better returns over the last few years than American venture capital.
1: Well, do you think that's because of the number of venture capitalists out
0: there? Well, the reason why Europe is doing better is that uh, the deals are a lot cheaper here. The really good software engineers, for example, are three times more expensive in Silicon Valley than here. So we've got a much lower cost base. And arguably, you know, the people are as bright in Europe as they're in the States.
1: Absolutely true.
0: So we've heard the four real
1: new prospects that you're looking forward to over the next few years. How about yourself? What's in store for the next 10 years? Where will you be in 10 years' time?
0: Well, I I have this uh, great excitement about uh, the presence. I've never seen so many exciting, interesting deep technology deals than right now. And deep technology is what I do. So I'm enjoying very much what I'm doing. And I'm enjoying doing some of this back in my home country of Austria. Uh, So I've set up a little family fund there in Innsbruck with my cousins. Uh, I am on various uh, committees in in Austria advising the government to help the Austrian ecosystem, which has always been the last in Europe. So the the big advantage of being so far behind is that you can grow very rapidly. The growth rates are high, so people are very excited about it. And it's very easy to know what to do because you just have to copy what the successful countries like Britain have done, and uh, I'm helping with that.
1: that's absolutely brilliant. Herman, your business journey so far and your investment journey have just been absolutely extraordinary. And the stories you give are absolutely brilliant and the listeners will absolutely love them. And all the best for the next 10 years. And we'll watch out for Austria as well as Amadeus. Thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you very much. (laughs) Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online and be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook to get the most up to date, interesting and insightful content from the invested investor.